Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I would like to begin by paying my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I am coming to you from today. Land where at brainwaves we tell our stories, and land where the traditional custodians have told their stories for many, many years before us, and continue to tell their stories. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present, and acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners who are listening today. Hello and welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR, 855 AM on your dial and digitally. I'm Flick Manning, your host, and I'm thrilled to be sharing this time with you today, driving you home. Brainwaves is a mental health-focused show with a lived experience lens. We enjoy having guests on with a broad spectrum of experience with mental health, from those living with conditions to those treating them and everyone in between. Over the next two weeks, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Susan Trackman from the United States of America about a broad range of mental health topics. Today's episode is part one. Dr. Susan Trackman is a practicing psychiatrist with over 30 years of experience and is passionate about exploring medically unexplained illnesses through the lens of psychiatry. She is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Virginia Commonwealth University and clinical associate professor of psychiatry at George Washington University in America, where she teaches medical students, residents and post-residency fellows in psychiatry. She's currently working on a book about the mind-body connection and psychosomatic disorders. Susan, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. First question for you is what does mental health mean to you professionally? Um, Thank you for that question. I don't think that one can just separate mental health from overall health. And I think uh, in many ways, there's been this arbitrary distinction between mental health and physical health, which if you think about it, is ridiculous. Because as I say to my own patients, the analogy that I like to use for folks is if you think about your brain as the big computer in your head, you know, the brain has lots of USB ports, And those USB connections go everywhere, right? They go to your heart, they go to your lungs, they go to your kidneys, and vice versa, the organs that they connect to send messages back to the brain. So it's not a one-way connection. It's essentially a conversation, just like you and I are having. So the brain will say chat to the heart, and then the heart will report back to the brain, you know, and so forth. It's such a brilliant way of looking at it. I completely agree with you. I think it definitely needs to be looked at more of an integrated version of how it all connects together. And I guess those of us living with physical health conditions as well as mental health conditions can certainly attest to that conversation that is happening between the brain and the body. It's so beautifully worded. Thank you for sharing that. So then how do you explore medically unexplained illnesses through the lens of psychiatry? Well, you know, I'm trained as a physician. So I went to medical school just like cardiologists and pulmonologists and cancer docs. Uh, the difference is that I have a, diff- a potentially a, um, a more holistic perspective when someone walks into the office. Um, I'll tell you about a recent example, if I may. Lovely woman who called me on the phone, and I, I'm sort of paraphrasing the conversation, but it was something to the effect of, I'm not sure if you can help me. I've seen every other doctor, but I heard you're pretty good at this. I'm like, <laughs> okay, pretty good at what? 
And uh, she said, you know, I have all these physical symptoms. I've probably been to six or eight different specialists. No one can figure out what's wrong with me. Would you be willing to see me? I know this is a long shot. I'm like, no, that's fine. Please, let's, let's make an appointment and have you come on in. <clears throat> so I believe it was a couple of weeks before I could get her in uh, because as I'm sure it is in Australia, in the U.S., there's a mental health crisis. It takes sometimes a long time to get new patients in. And when she came in, uh, went to greet her in the waiting room, she was sitting there with her husband and they, to give you an image of what they might look like or what they did look like, are you all familiar with what an LL Bean catalog looks like? You probably have your version of that. It's kind of an outdoorsy clothing ish or Patagonia type catalog, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, they both looked, you know, tan and fit and, um, you know, dressed as if they were about to go on a hike. Invited them both in. I sit down on my couch and I look at this woman and she looks to her husband to give me the story. It's almost as if she was sort of a shell of herself. So her husband gave me the story that his wife had been a previously, you know, incredibly active, outgoing woman, loved to hike, was a, um, I believe she was a rower. Like she'd go out and row, you know, every morning. She was engaged with the children. She volunteered. And for the past two years or two years prior to me seeing her, um, had developed these symptoms that started in her leg and progressed to different places and had never been ill before, apparently never had a psychiatric history, according to what her husband said. And she's acknowledging this as she sits next to him and, you know, kind of nodding, but not talking very much. And again, I won't go through all the doctors she'd seen, but let's suffice to say at least half a dozen specialists, right? So cardiologist, neurologist, internist, physical medicine specialist had engaged in all kinds of scans and lab work and nothing came back unusual, except maybe there was a little bit of, you know, age appropriate deterioration uh, in her lower spine, but nothing to explain her symptoms, uh, which were not that unusual. I mean, she had these sort of pains in various places. Of course, she's worried about MS, but nope, that was ruled out. And we're coming to the end of the hour and I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, I really don't know if I can help her because I'm not sure that I know what is going on here. And then I just said to her, what's happened to you in the past few years? And that's where the story began. Started with COVID in the U.S. at that point, but even prior to that, five to seven years prior, she had experienced about a dozen deaths of young people in tragic ways. Uh, children of friends, and I'll just several were overdoses. One was suicide. One fell off a cliff in a hiking accident. One was killed in a suicide bomb bomb in Israel. And the straw that broke the camel's back a month before she developed her symptoms. Her son was hit by a car in a crosswalk. Fortunately, he survived. But this woman was profoundly depressed, even though she didn't experience it as such. She experienced it through physical symptoms. And when I explained to her what I thought was going on, she was quite skeptical, but agreed to start on a low dose of an antidepressant, which is also an antidepressant that tends to work for folks who have physical pain because it was originally designed to be used in patients with chronic pain. I saw her two weeks later without her husband, and it was almost as if it was the before and after picture. Uh, remarkable, right? I'm not such a genius, quite honestly, Fleck. I am not a genius. I am not the best psychiatrist on the face of the earth, although I think I'm decent or maybe better than decent. It was just understanding what was going on and explaining to her what I thought was happening. Now, 
She's not perfect. She still has twinges here and there, but she can understand what's going on and work her way through it and has been kind enough to write up a synopsis of her history for me so that I can include it in my upcoming book. That's amazing. That's amazing because you hear all the time that there's a connection and between the two, but mm-hmm. very often I guess people that are living maybe with chronic pain and illnesses, they hear it a lot from their initial doctor appointments where people aren't even then willing to investigate the physical symptoms. So there's sort of becomes this overlap where they're not sure whether to believe that there can be that connection between, you know, the mental and the physical. They would like to maybe believe that is they're completely separate from each other. But obviously you're indicating here that there is a big circumstance where there can be overlap of trauma perhaps manifesting or living grief living inside the body. Do you see that in a lot of patients? Is that a fairly common thing that pops up these days? You know, it is. And I think, um, you know, just to look at the bestseller list, I mean, uh, The Body Keeps the Score has been on the bestseller list for, I don't know, a dozen years. Uh, Van der Kolk's book about um, how trauma lives inside of us. And depending upon when the trauma occurred in one's life, uh, you may develop different kinds of physical symptoms. So this is not a new uh, conception. This is, this is, you know, in doing the research for my book in terms of the history, I mean, this goes back to, I believe it was the 1600s when a female physician in Italy started to develop this concept. The whole idea of the mind-body connection is not a new one. It's become popular. But I think that that also may be a phenomenon of what's happening in the world because we know that stress and the whole experience of stress can impact one's mental and, of course, then physical health. And we've definitely got a lot of stress in the world at the moment. The last few years have been particularly brutal. Susan, just moving on a little bit, you've actually had a career in forensic psychiatry. What's that taught you about how to address and why we should address mental health widely? Thank you for asking that question. Um, When when people hear that I'm a forensic psychiatrist, they think I deal with dead people, which I don't. uh, forensic just means that I, I work with the legal system uh, as well. Uh, that's I don't do that full time. I do that you know, some of the time. Um, you know, there are a lot of mental health issues that fall into the legal sphere. Legal sphere, and I think one that that comes across my desk quite often is the whole issue of post traumatic stress disorder. That's an easy claim to make in a forensic se- uh, case because it's, it's a self-reported diagnosis, meaning um, as long as you learn all the symptoms, you can report post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, not to say that there's not a, a good amount of it. However, I don't know what the statistics are in, 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 the, uh, in Australia or in the UK, but in the United States, only about 30% of people who are exposed to really traumatic situations uh, go on to develop full post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's a legal nightmare. It's a defense attorney's nightmare, so to speak. And uh, my job is to evaluate the claimant and to determine if there really is uh, significant evidence to support that diagnosis, which ultimately means you know, monetary uh, compensation. I think the other problem with that, Flick, is that it's a term that's used uh, fairly um, innocuously, meaning... I think a lot of practitioners, well-meaning practitioners, uh, hear that someone's been in a motor vehicle accident. Well, of course, you have post-traumatic stress disorder, which is not the case. Uh, 
you know, you might have some elements of being anxious temporarily um, in a certain driving situations, but uh, we, we toss around, I shouldn't say we, I think many practitioners toss around that diagnosis quite um, frequently when that's not the case, which is not to say that there really not, are not psychological damages, you know, in forensic cases. And I think, you know, one good example would be uh, in employment harassment cases. Um, I have, uh, in the course of my practice, examined numerous uh, individuals, not just women, who have been uh, sexually harassed on the job, who develop psychological symptoms. Many times this, this turns into physical symptoms, um, you know, chronic headaches, gastrointestinal problems, uh, difficulty sleeping. And again, it's my job to determine if the evidence supports the diagnosis. And sometimes it does. Very interesting line of work. So I'm sure that you see all sorts of different kinds of cases, as you mentioned, as widely these kinds of things being explored in the, the legal sphere. It's very interesting at the moment. We're seeming to be, I mean, I think there's been a fascination with, you know, every aspect of forensic psychiatry as it's pertained to how it's used in media. Obviously, lots of things about serial killers, true crime, all of that <laughs> kind of stuff. And we're seeing like a really big boom of that uh, programs, you know, docu-series and mocu-series and things coming out about that. And quite often they do use things like PTSD as sort of how they frame the realities for people that are on the receiving end of that trauma or are living alongside that. Um, how accurate do you think that, you know, these kinds of portrayals of what it's actually like, what the the aspects or the these consequences of trauma are actually like for people. Do you think that's particularly real what we're seeing or is it just Hollywood? Good question. Um, and I have to sort of answer in, in first as a uh, preface, most of the work I do in forensic uh, psychiatry is on, on the civil side. Um, you're talking about the criminal side. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have done um, some criminal evaluations, but that's not my area of real expertise. Um, but in terms of answering your question, I think that, you know, I think that Hollywood, uh, and listen, I fall prey to that. I love these series. I think they're, I think they're really fascinating. Um, I, I'm drawn to them maybe because of my background, but just because I think some of the stories are just so bizarre. Um, you know, there was, there's a Netflix series on, on Jeffrey Dahmer, I don't know if you've mm. seen it, but I have I'm to tell you, through it. <laughs> I watched it. I don't know why, you know, it just, it just draws you in. Now, I don't know that we get the true story. In fact, we don't get the true story, right? It's Ryan Murphy. It's Hollywood. They, they, they make things pretty awful. And I think they showed more than they really needed to. And, and I think probably the surviving family members of the victims were not too thrilled and I don't blame them. And it was pretty horrific. Now, did Jeffrey Dahmer suffer some type of trauma early in his life? I think what we do know uh, is that his mother uh, had her own history of mental illness and um, was ingesting all kinds of medications and, and who knows what else during her pregnancy. Did that influence what he ultimately became? You know, he is so outside the norm uh, in terms of being a serial killer and, and, and someone who you know, engaged in cannibalism. I mean, there's lots of surviving human beings whose mothers uh, engaged in all kinds of substance abuse um, and other stuff while they, they were pregnant and, you know, they don't become serial killers. So I don't think we can 
say that, yeah, he is, he became what he became because of what happened. As with most things, it's probably a multifactorial event. Within the series, I mean, his father in the series by the actor uh, suggests that he had some of the same fantasies that the Jeffrey Dahmer went on to not just uh, fantasize about, but to actually operationalize. So is there a genetic component? You know, I'm not an expert on, on serial killers or, or cannibalism. So I, I don't, don't want to say anything that may not be true, but I would just suggest to you that as with most illnesses, uh, and I'm not sure if I would call what he had an illness uh, or a personality disorder or a combination of both, but more likely than not, it was probably the result of, of multi-factors. It seems like so many of us are into true crime, but also so many of us are into just trying to understand what makes people tick? Why do mm-hmm. they do what they do? Was that mm-hmm. kind of your reason for going into that line of psychiatry in the first place? That's a great question. And um, when I went to medical school, I thought I would be an OBGYN um, because I wanted to do women's mental health and I wanted to deliver babies. And uh, I thought that would be just great. In the course of my four years of medical school, the worst rotation I had was obstetrics and gynecology. Um, I will tell you a true story about this. For whatever reason, this resident took a dislike to me. And if I did something wrong, it was wrong. If I did something right, it was wrong. One of the things that medical students in the U.S. are able to do during surgery is cut the sutures. So in the course of the operation, the resident will say, okay, cut. So I did. I cut the sutures. And he's like, you cut them too short. Okay. Next operation, I'm in there with this guy. He goes, okay, cut cut the sutures. They're too long. So I cut them longer this time. Nope. Cut them too long. This went on and on and on until finally one night I was on call uh, with this resident and I got called to an emergency operation for an ectopic pregnancy, which is a medical emergency. At this point, I decided I've had it with these people. There's no way I'm going into obstetrics. So I go in there, I assist really lovely uh, attending physician, private doctor who came in to do the operation, do the operation hand me the suit. Okay, cut. And I looked at him and I said, you want them too long or too short? And the, the attending physician laughed so hard, I swear he almost fell into this woman's body cavity. So, so that was it for obstetrics and gynecology. Then I considered lots of other things. Until I did a rotation on what was then called consultation liaison psychiatry, which now is called psychosomatic medicine. And I had a very interesting uh, chief doc. He was British He thought he was Mick Jagger, and he would often refer to Mick Jagger. He was a neurologist and a psychiatrist. He was known for wanting to put you on the spot as we made rounds in the hospital. And one time I got really lucky because I had studied up on Parkinson's the night before. We're walking down the hall in the hospital, and and Dr. R points to me. He goes, Trackman, diagnosis. And I was like, "Um, Parkinson's? Uh, Are you asking me or telling me? I was like, well, I'm telling you, it's, it's Parkinson's. I got lucky. The guy had been shuffling down the hall. It was very easy diagnosis. Make a long story short, we saw the most interesting patients in the hospital. And I thought, this is really cool. I like this because I have to know a lot of medicine. I have to know neurology. And these people have such interesting stories. This is something I really could consider. So I did. Uh, when I finished medical school, I did a residency at George Washington, where I'm now uh, an associate clinical professor. Then I went on to do a psychosomatic fellowship at Georgetown. And I've been practicing that ever since because I see, I think, some, my job is never boring. I see some of the most interesting patients. Some of them come in actually in wheelchairs. Some, 
uh, there have been times when I had someone come in on a stretcher. So it's quite interesting. Uh, it's never boring. It has to keep me up on all kinds of areas areas of medicine that I might otherwise have not known about. And so, like I said, uh, my work is never boring. How fabulous. That's the way it should be for everyone, really, isn't it? Yeah. Something that engages you. Susan, in addition to everything else that you've got on, you are actually also a columnist at Psychology Today. What's been your most interesting discovery or exploration into mental health that you've been able to share with the world? Well, thank you again for that question. You know, I think I've always been interested in writing. And in the course of my training, even as a resident and a post-residency fellow, I did publish but in professional journals. And I'd like to think that when I see patients in my office, um, part of what I do is, is educate and teach. But in the course of, of wanting to write for the lay public and educate, you no, know, I've learned a lot, um, particularly in this era of COVID. Uh, you know, in the beginning, before we knew more about it, we knew people were getting sick, but we also saw that people were developing mental health issues um, without ever having any prior to having an infection with COVID. So I had to sort of do a deep dive into that and to how COVID affects the brain. And it does very much so. It's what we call a, um, it's a, it's a neuropathic virus, meaning it likes the brain. Uh, unfortunately, it likes other parts of the body too, but it does like the brain. And so I think that's one of the things that we've learned and explains some of the symptoms that people have. For example, you know, the brain fog. People can develop uh, depression where they've never had it before. People can develop anxiety disorders where they've never had it before. And it's because of how COVID and many other viruses cause it a process in the body called inflammation. Inflammation affects the brain as well as the rest of the body. And that can cause changes in what we call neurotransmitters, which are brain chemicals, um, which then may develop into psychiatric symptoms. I had one uh, young lady that I evaluated by a friend of a friend who's a child psychiatrist asked her to, me to see this person, who was a lovely young woman at a top university in the U.S. Never had a psychiatric uh, history before, but had become psychotic after developing COVID and you know, obviously we had to address it because she was standing on the edge of a building and was, we were worried she was going to jump off the building and ended up in the hospital. So that's certainly one of the things where I've had to learn something new um, so that I can report it. And I think the first article I published on that column was, um, can COVID make you depressed? And I think to this day, it's the one that's gotten the most views. Wow. And we definitely hear a lot of that, people just not feeling the way that they did before, you know, six months, 12 months, two years mm -hmm. after getting COVID. So I think that's a conversation that certainly needs to keep happening so that we can keep informing the, the leaders and the decision makers about how to approach uh, COVID across the world. So thank you for sharing that. Very, sure. very interesting. What do you think everyday people can do to better identify and then provide genuine support to those in their lives who may be experiencing psychiatric conditions. In the U.S., uh, there's an advisory board that uh, really just in the past two weeks came out with a recommendation that everyone in a primary care practice should be evaluated, screened for anxiety and depression. And I think that would be the first step. I hope something like that's going to be happening in Australia the other uh, interesting and very important fact that I, I just learned this past week is the Kaiser Foundation, which is a big research foundation here in, in the U.S., reported that 90% of uh, U.S. citizens believe there's a mental health crisis. So I think 
the fact that it's becoming um, more out in the public, I think what we can do and really work hard to do is really just destigmatize this whole idea that if you have a psychiatric diagnosis, you know, you're weird or crazy or anything like that. I have patients still coming to me for the first time um, who've had symptoms for years. And I'd say to them, why now? And one of the things that they will say to me is that I was afraid that, that people would think I was crazy. I was concerned about the stigma. I didn't want my employers to learn about it. So I think just becoming more aware of it and hopefully, you know, I know I'm not the only one who's writing about these things. I think the more they get out in the lay public, the better. I think the more that primary care uh, practitioners will screen for these and if they feel capable of it, treating it themselves or referring them to someone like me, I, I am fairly well known in my community as someone who will consult with other specialists. So I get calls from primary care doctors. I get calls from oncologists, from neurologists, from OBGYNs, and their patients may not want to see a psychiatrist, but I can at least inform them, the practitioner, so that they can treat because, you know, depression is one of the leading causes of disability worldwide. That's not just in the U.S. And we also know that depression untreated will lead to more uh, significant, uh, poor outcomes in, in physical illness. It's critically important to treat these disorders because they're very treatable. They're really very, very treatable. Well, Susan, this complete concludes part one of our interview. I know we've got so much more to chat about and I look forward to having you back for the next session. Thank you so much for being with us so far today. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Now, everyone at home, I hope this episode has left you hungry for more because next week we will be talking more about the brain-gut axis, more about your brain and mental health in general. There's so much more to chat about. So please tune in at 5 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time on 3CR. For now, I want to say thank you for spending your time with myself and Dr. Trackman. And, of course, as I sign off today, I want to make a reminder that your mental health is of equal importance to your physical health. So if you haven't already done so today, please take a moment to take a breath, inhale deeply, exhale deeply, shower your hardworking body and mind with some much-deserved care because it really all counts. I look forward to chatting with you next time on Brainwaves. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.